1: and we're part of the Tom Fox Compliance Podcast Network. I'm here today with a friend of mine, Taylor Twiney, who is the Director of Sales for the Americas of EthicsBase, a leading third-party due diligence company. And we're gonna kind of address today how companies are taking a risk-based approach to third-party due diligence and answer your questions around how much and what's needed. So welcome, Taylor. Thank
0: you, Vincent. Thank you very much for having me on your show.
1: Glad you could make it. So. As part of our Walden Pond mascot, we always open up with a quote from Thoreau. And I saw this one that kind of relates to why one would do a due diligence to make sure that the folks that we're doing business with are the types of people we want to be associated with. So the quote from Henry Thoreau, 150 plus years ago, our whole life is startlingly moral. There is never an instance truce between virtue and vice Goodness is the only investment that never fails. So basically, we need to be good. And I thought, well, what better way to check being good than to do a due diligence check? <laughs> That's what we yeah. think of you.
0: That's very relevant. And, you know, it's interesting. I've been in this space a long, long time, and you truly never know what you're going to find until you find it.
1: Yeah. Let's focus on you first. So for my audience, they like to know kind of what's your background and how did you get into your current role at Space.
0: So, I joined a few months ago from another due diligence firm where I'd been the business unit president running the due diligence business for five plus years, providing enhanced due diligence reports mostly to corporations and financial institutions. Prior to that, I spent some time as a consultant with Dow Jones in their risk and compliance business. Also, due diligence and list screening was part of my mandate there. But mm-hmm before I got into consulting, I spent with the banks, Goldman Sachs and Barclays Capital. And I was an AML compliance officer covering the private bank, prime brokerage, and investment banking. So it was really my last five years or so in the banks where I started to really, or where we started to really acknowledge the need based on some emerging regulatory pressure to understand third-party risk and manage it. This hadn't been a really big focus in compliance at that time. It was all about client risk. But we had the infrastructure to do it, and from having an AML compliance program, obviously. So, top of managing potential risks from clients, we were now managing potential risks from third parties. That was really my initial exposure to anti-bribery and anti-corruption.
1: Right. No. Very cool. Yeah, you've been doing this a long time, and maybe you can help answer. When I think about so much around third-party due diligence, which it's an integral part of every compliance program, but I always think about how much should be done. And at what levels? You know, I hear that you can overkill and take in thousands of vendors. You can can do dumpster diving and really drill down and interview and do site locations. What levels? And maybe you can describe for the audience the various levels of background checks that are available.
0: Yeah, I can start with the the levels and really put it into two categories. There's screening and then there's enhanced due diligence reports. The screening is simply inputting a name and running it against a compliance watch list. So the system comes back instantly with results, to hit or a no hit, and then you can review, determine whether or not it's a true hit or a false positive, and action it accordingly. So these, these lists, plenty of very mature lists out there that do all the work for you, and they cover everything from sanctions, which is critically important, enforcement lists from government authorities, regulatory actions and law enforcement lists, political exposure, which is key. Lists. These lists are updated by teams of people who monitor political activity in various countries and add names when certain criteria is met. And then they also run adverse media profiles looking for certain terms like corruption and money laundering and terrorist financing. So the lists are a big part of screening. And you can run individual names or you can run batches. As Vince mentioned, there's, sometimes you have an exorbitant amount of names. You don't know what to do with them. Batch upload into a screening tool, and you get your results and you can manage them accordingly. On the other side of that, there's a deeper dive, if you will, the enhanced due diligence research reports. And this is really where you have various levels you can go to, but the differentiator is that this is largely being done by analysts and it can take some time. It's not instant, it can take two to seven days, depending upon what jurisdictions and what level of scope you need to do. But the researcher is combing through data and analyzing findings and eliminating false positives to the extent possible, eliminating irrelevant data, and they're creating the report for you.
1: Yeah, nice. So the enhance is a little bit, it's not just a hit or miss on a certain database. It's actually someone thinking about what was going on and helping reduce maybe some of the false positives, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the common question that I get when I'm presenting this is, does it incorporate the watch list screening data that I mentioned previously? And the answer is yes. Yeah, of course. That's sort of your baseline. That's where all the sanctions information is, and that's critically important. And that's where your data is, and that's also very important. But it goes deeper on things like media. It might go back further in time. You might incorporate English and a local language so you're not missing something from a local news item where there's a relevant material adverse mention. You might incorporate court records, or you might incorporate the verification or confirmation of certain credentials, like a certain degree or a professional designation, or even a business claim that you want to confirm actually occurred or is truthful. So it's really about the human is searching through more unstructured data. Court records vary around the world in complexity and the way they're formatted and stored and and even accessible. Yeah, sure. Or things behind a firewall. The watch list screening data, data sets don't always get behind firewalls. And then the key is the false positives. Hopefully, you have most of those carved out depending upon how much information's in the HIT or in what we call the seed data, the data given to us or input. You can rule them out or sometimes you may need to you know, have a conversation with the party. And that's less frequent, though.
1: Right, right. That was one of my things about false positives, how to reduce them. On a scan, again, a human's not so much involved because you're taking a larger number. But on the enhanced due diligence, well, again, nothing's ever going to completely eliminate it. At least a human is kind of taking it into consideration to eliminate false hits, right?
0: Exactly. Yes.
1: That's an important point for a differentiator. That's good. Well, Continuing on that, then like how should compliance officers determine which parties should get what levels of due diligence? Should they be getting only a quick scan or should they get, you know, an enhanced due diligence? What's that decision process look like?
0: Yeah, and that's an age-old question as well. Generally with third parties, I mean most companies have in excess of a thousand third parties. Many have many, many more than that and they do various things they provide various services to you they are in various parts of the world they are of various industry type they get paid in different ways so you can look at it in many different ways initially a general school of thought is you really should be managing 100% of your third parties in order to do that at the very least you're going to do a use a screening database to ensure that you don't have any issues with sanctions critically, critically important to do at the very least. Then what you can do once you determine that you don't, hopefully, you can move to your risk assessment mode. And then depending on how much data you have from your third parties, you can carve it out in terms of industry type or product service, location, etc. And then you can categorize based on that and based on what you determine to be relevant towards high, medium, or low and screen accordingly. So your low risk might be simply screening against sanctions and enforcement lists. Your high might be screening against the full data set, meaning all the data sets that I talked about from PEPs to adverse media profiles, to sanctions, to law enforcement lists. In addition to that, you may incorporate enhanced due diligence research reports the results won't be instantly available, but you're doing certainly more than enough to address your risk accordingly. And then right. medium can be simply another data screen. But your, your high-risk population is going to tend to be a small percentage of your population. Right. It's generally 8% or less, sometimes much less. Hmm. So dealing with, and you're able to spend time and resources on a smaller population.
1: And I would imagine that from a cost perspective, doing the scans are a lot less than doing the more detailed enhanced due diligence, right?
0: Yes. And that's a key component or a consideration that a lot of compliance teams or procurement teams are considering. The enhanced due diligence reports are going to be significantly more than screening. And of course, they take more time. And there's a lot more information to digest and action, which is also something to consider.
1: Right, right. And I've seen those enhanced due diligence reports that you've provided me as an example. And yeah, and they're like 10, 15 page reports that for on that one entity to review, which is a good PDF that that stays in the file, I guess. And let me move on to the next kind of question around the importance of questionnaires. Again, you think about the vendor or the supplier or third party questionnaire before they even get onboarded. And how is that kind of integrated with the due diligence? How's that part of the process?
0: Yeah, the due diligence questionnaires, known as DDQs in the industry, are becoming more and more widely used. And it's a really critical part of understanding risk that your third parties may be bringing to your organization. So as we think about an integrated solution, it's really a key part of understanding the risk. It's communicating with the clients, understanding their business better, and understanding those risks. Collecting this information can drive your risk assessment. Or your risk scoring so it depends upon when you when you decide to use the ddqs the due diligence questionnaires because many of the questions within the due diligence questionnaires have red flags baked into them and that information or those responses to those specific questions drive your risk scoring or your risk analysis people mm-hmm. ask questions about government connections or does your third party have any clients in sanctioned countries or what is the method of remuneration or is it a new relationship or is it an older relationship or what type of legal entity are they? And in order to have a true comprehensive program, this is really important to consider using. The key really is, and I'm sure what a lot of listeners are thinking is, boy, this sounds like a lot of work, but there are platforms in this space. Some are quite mature and the platform does a lot of the work for you. And that's really key to understand because The platform can send the due diligence questionnaire to your third party, and in addition, it does the task of tracking the progress of these, reminding them to complete them, and it collects them and implements them, and then, of course, bakes in the the red flags to the risk scoring. So, very much an automated process these days. Once you determine the type of questions that you want to put on the DDQ and to who they're going to. So, a supplier versus a distributor versus any other type of third party may get a different set of questions. And that's more bespoke, but that's also very much an emerging trend in third party risk management.
1: That makes sense. You know, when I look at a lot of the questionnaires in some of the work that I do helping clients kind of evaluate and improve their compliance program, oftentimes those questionnaires are developed by procurement and accounting professionals, which are fine, except they're missing key components. They're asking more questions about what's your cash flow, what's your done in Bradstreet rating, and how solid are you as an entity and a going concern so that you're not going to default on us and interrupt our supply chain. They don't ask as much of what compliance would be asking in terms of are you a government entity, etc. And I think as a reminder, you need to have both in your questionnaire, both the stability and question size and financial strength, but also the compliance aspects and There's always an opportunity for compliance professionals to revisit that questionnaire if they haven't done so recently. Would you agree? (laughs) I'm sorry for my soapbox, but I see it too often.
0: No, no, absolutely. And this goes with the idea that your program should always be evolving. So you can always incorporate that in future modifications. I think definitely it's a group effort. I mean, having input from the general counsel or your compliance team, depending on how your organization is structured makes a lot of sense because they're going to add a lot. And they're truly the experts in managing risk from a compliance standpoint. So it really needs to be part of a group effort. And we're seeing a lot more of that as well.
1: Very good. Well, we have time, Taylor, for one last question. And I like to end it on kind of like an advice question. What advice would you have for compliance officers um, as they look at their own third-party due diligence program?
0: That's a good one Vincent. I think really the key is having a sustainable program, allowing automation to do as much work as possible, identifying the highest risks to your organization and then and then you know where to allocate or prioritize your policies and procedures and controls. So platforms allow for a lot of this automation. They do the record keeping, they provide an audit trail, they can manage the risk assessments, they offer training modules and and more. So It's really important that you leverage automation. I mean, there's a large number of organizations we see that are trying to move away from spreadsheets to manage all this, and it's more and more and more work. So, I think that, along with working closely with legal and compliance, as we mentioned, just to have your program be constantly evolving and aware of emerging trends. One, for example, that I see quite often is complying with or being aligned with things like the UN General Compact, where new risk areas are in focus. It's not just anti-bribery and corruption. It's about modern slavery and environmental crime and human rights. And those are key focus areas that you should be aware of and that the regulators are starting to focus on more and more.
1: Yeah, it's not just bribery and corruption anymore these days. That's a good point. Well, Taylor, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, joining me out on the pond today. And everybody in the audience, thank you for listening. And it's the Walden Pond on the Tom Fox Compliance Podcast Network. Taylor, thank you for your time. And we'll talk again soon.
0: Great. Thank you, Vincent. I enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Walden Pond Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review.